Welcome to Lamb of God Podcast. We hope you enjoy this week's episode. Our plan this week is uh, AT&T is supposed to um, set up a straight, direct internet connection for the church on Wednesday. With that in mind, we will then be able to put the camera in the back. Okay, so this won't be blocking us anymore. And then the other goal, and the purpose of that is to uh, go on Facebook Live or YouTube or both and uh, be able to stream and be able to reach some people we haven't reached before. So prayerfully, this would be our last day on Zoom, and, but uh, obviously they're having some problems, and if we are, then other churches are too. So we'll just thank the Lord for it, and, and uh, trust He has uh, uh, reasons in our disappointment. Um, second, I just want to thank you for being here, and good to see your faces, and and hear live music, and not streaming, and be able to Uh, communicate with you directly about our Lord Jesus Christ. So I'm just really grateful for that today, and thanks for being here today. Um, We're going to be in Acts chapter 26. This is the third of uh, Paul's conversion stories. Three times in Acts, he gives his testimony, if you will, of what the Lord did in his life and how he was converted by the Holy Spirit through an appearance of the risen Christ. And the title of my message today is Christ is Our All in All. It's taken from a phrase in Colossians 3, 11. Christ is our all in all. Go down to in Acts 26, 12. In this connection, I journeyed to Damascus with authority and commission of the chief priests. At midday, O king, I saw on the way a light from heaven, brighter than the sun that shone around me and those who journeyed with me. And when we had all fallen to the ground, I heard a voice saying to me in the Hebrew language, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. And I said, Who are you, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus whom you're persecuting. But rise and stand upon your feet, for I have appeared to you for this purpose, to appoint you as servant and witness to the things in which you have seen me and to those which I will appear to you, delivering you from the people and from the Gentiles to whom I am sending you, to open their eyes so they may turn from darkness to light, from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sin and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. That's a very deep and worded and meaty testimony that uh, Saul or Paul, uh, Saul would be his Hebrew name, Paul would be his Greek name, is giving us one thing I want us to recognize or focus upon this is he had an encounter with the living Jesus. And in that encounter, his life was forever changed. His heart was transformed and his purpose in life was different. Okay. He had a purpose. Before he encountered Jesus, he's on the road to Damascus to go find Christians to persecute. He had already led the killing of uh, Stephen. And this was a hardened man thinking that by killing Christians, he was doing God a favor, as Jesus prophesied in John. And here's the famous Carvaggio uh, painting you may have seen where Paul has fallen off a horse and his arms are lifted up. And I like that particular artist, but there's nothing in the text that tells us he was riding a horse. They assume it because it's such a great distance from Jerusalem to Damascus, but there's no, uh, it's nothing in the text that indicates that. 
The three times he gives his testimony, this is the one time he does say, I encountered a resurrected Jesus. I encountered a living Christ. I encountered someone who is supposed to be dead, but is alive and real. And I see an encounter face to face. Not only is um, when, when Jesus encounters him on the road, Jesus says to Paul, why are you persecuting me? In other words, if you persecute a member of the body of Christ, you're persecuting Jesus. Right? You get the connection. We are his body. So if his body's being harmed, Christ is being harmed. I can't imagine what that must have felt like when you to suddenly realize you are entirely wrong about all the assumptions you've ever made about Jesus. Well, he's just a dead supposed prophet. All of these people, they're just a sect that's just ruining everything. And all of a sudden you realize you're encountering a living Jesus who actually did rise from the dead and these people are important. They're his body. It's so hard for you to kick against the goads. It's so hard for you to pursue this life. And notice in verse 15, this is a Jew, a monotheistic Jew who only believes there's one God. And yet in verse 15, he said, who are you, Lord? At that very moment, he recognized Jesus was God. And again, that forever changed his perception of who God is, who Jesus was. Verse 15, and the Lord said, I am Jesus whom you're persecuting. He recognized that Jesus was God. And it forever changes him. The fancy word they use in theology is called apocalypse. It's the word revelation. The book of Revelation is actually in Greek, the book of the apocalypse. And it's becoming popular in New Testament speak to talk about an apocalyptic Paul. A Paul that encountered a revelation that forever changed him. And this is that moment. This is that revelation. Jesus says, rise and stand upon your feet for I have appeared to you for this purpose, to put you as a servant, as a witness. So not only is he getting saved, so to speak, he's getting called and commissioned as a prophet. And his purpose is to deliver from your people and from the Gentiles who I'm sending you to open their eyes, verse 18. That's that very word, Apocalypse. I want to use you as you share about me to open people's hearts so that they can see me, the resurrected Jesus, so that they may turn from darkness to light from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are set apart by faith in me. It's interesting in this particular theologians believe that in this particular encounter with the risen Jesus, that every major doctrine that Paul teaches in his letters can be found in this testimony. Okay, let me just name a few of them. Regeneration, a heart has changed and transformed from a heart of stone, as Ezekiel would put it, to a heart of flesh, someone that's tender and ready to listen and obey the Lord. Justification, it means being approved and accepted by God. It's found here by faith. Jesus is telling him to look to him and faith, and he will be made right with God. Reconciliation. Instead of being an enemy of God, he's now a friend of God, part of 
being adopted into God's family. Sanctification, being set apart for the Lord. Anthropology means understanding man as a sinner. He's understanding image of God, law, spirit, who Christ is, and missions. All in this one encounter with God and all those themes reappear constantly and constantly in Paul's letters. What I'm trying to say is this. Some of you may have come to Christ. You may have been raised in church. And you're, uh, you were, it's hardly a time when you didn't know you weren't a Christian. You knew in your heart that you, he was the Lord of your life, but you can't necessarily put a date and a time on it. And that's fine. But you know in your heart that you've looked to him in faith and he's your Savior and Lord. There's other of us who made a, maybe we were at a revival meeting or a camp meeting or a friend was sharing with us the gospel. And we can pinpoint the day and the moment when we yielded our hearts to Christ and asked him to forgive us. Told him we would make him Lord of our lives and he would lead us. And we forever fell in love with the Savior who took our place on the cross and suffered a penalty for our sin. Either testimony is just a valid. One may be a little more dramatic than the other. I remember growing up in a more fundamentalist church where it was like people, they had testimony night and each testimony got a little more dramatic as it went on because we had to have a story. But not every conversion is as dramatic as Paul's, but every conversion contains these truths. That you encounter a risen Jesus, he forever transforms your life, he calls you to his purposes, and you forever can't, you're forever different. The old person is gone, the selfish person is being challenged, and the Holy Spirit's filled your heart and you're ready to live unto the Lord. We've, during the Easter season, we've been taking, talking about God's heart for us, Jesus' heart for us in our brokenness and our loneliness. Loneliness. I want us to see to the other today, just afresh, who Jesus is, as Christ is our all in all. There's a beautiful sermon that was preached. We th- they think it was around the 18... 18- uh, before the Civil War in South Carolina, probably 1850s, 1845, something like that. It was uh, preached by a Presbyterian minister, called, uh, William Swan, uh, Swan Plummer. And you can just find it on the internet, but it's one of the best sermons I've ever read. And it's called Christ All in All. And one of the things he does in that sermon as he just begins, and it's a graduation ceremony. I thought this is the way a graduation ceremony should be done. This is a graduation ceremony, and it's a talk that's been saved all the years because it's so precious. And one of the things he does is he goes from A, he goes through all the alphabet with the exception of two letters, English letters. There's a name for Jesus in the Bible, except for Q and Z. There's a name for Jesus, at least one, sometimes three or four or five. They're in every uh, every alphabet in English describes a title or a name or a work of Christ. And in this sermon, he goes through and he starts naming these names. I don't know if he had a manuscript or if he just was reading, but it's it, when you read, read this, um, these names, it kind of rolls over you like a flood of just how beautiful and precious our Savior is and what his person and work is for us. 
and what he's done in our lives and transformed us and who it is that we love. So I'm going to just take, I'm promising I'm going to go to A to Z, but I'm going to take a couple of letters and I wanted you to think about who Jesus is and what this work or person that uh, the, the, these titles of Jesus, what he is as a person and what his work is for us. Okay. First one, we're just going to A, advocate. Well, we looked at that a couple of weeks ago. It means one who pleads another case. It means to have total solidarity with you. It means to have someone on your legal defense. In other words, when you sin, after you become a Christian, Christ is your advocate to say to the Lord, they're still in right standing with me. My blood has covered their sin. My righteousness is their righteousness. They're still in right standing with you. It has a sense of legal, like a lawyer, but also a sense of a person who's totally in solidarity with me, who's standing with me, and he's not going to forsake me in my lowest moment. When I've sinned and sinned badly, a lot of times we, it's been this, I don't know what it is about this generation, but I've never seen a time where relationships are being broken so quickly and instead of trying to resolve the relationship, the other one says, I won't talk to you anymore. Okay. Instead of trying to work out the difficulties and walk through the issues and the misunderstanding and the hurt, the conclusion is, I just don't want to deal with this. I'm not going to talk to you anymore. And I see it everywhere. I even talked to my personal doctor about it. It came up in conversation. Of course, he didn't give names. He just started listing off all these families he knew of where there was broken relationships and people not talking to each other anymore. And when we're at our lowest place, it's very painful when someone walks away and cuts us off. What the word advocate means is that Jesus will never cut us off. No matter how much we fail, no much we disappoint him, he's just not going to look at us and go, well, that's enough. I've had it. You've hurt me too much. You've disappointed too much. I'm walking away. I'm not going to talk to you anymore. That he's our advocate, our paraclete. He's the one who stands with us. He pleads our case. He's our defense in the midst of our failure. He walks with us. He's our Alpha and Omega. Now there is the Greek. That's the Greek. The we are A to Z in English. Greek is Alpha to Omega. Omega is your last letter. It means to be at the beginning and end of all history. It means that he's in control. It also means he uh, is Lord over language. It means everything is summed up in Christ. In that same verse in Revelation 1.8, says he was, it is, and is to come. He is our uh, almighty, our Alpha and Omega, and our almighty. Both are found in Revelation 1.8. The almighty means he's absolutely powerful in control. So the idea of Alpha and Omega, the idea of him being almighty, the Bible is trying to communicate that Christ is sovereign over all our circumstances. He's completely in control of history. I guess the thing that frees me is there's no luck. There's no randomness. There's no chance. Christ is in control. So when I'm suffering a disappointment, I can trust that it's an appointment from the Lord who's working in and through uh, my circumstances to draw me closer to Jesus. So if Jesus is my advocate when I fail, then Jesus is my Alpha and Omega and my Almighty One. 
in the midst of my struggles in life, in the midst of the ups and downs of life, I can look to Christ. Then in Hebrews 12, 2, we could turn there real quick. Hebrews 12, 2. Therefore, we have surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and sin which so closely, which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that's set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith. That's the phrase I want us to look at. He's the founder, in some translations, author and perfecter of our faith. Some translations, leader. Some translations, pioneer and perfecter of our faith. It's the Greek word archon. It means to go before and trailblaze. So he's the one that worked in your heart so that you would have faith to trust in him. Your relationship with him was all of grace. He pursued you. You may have thought you were the one who was doing all the initiating, but he's the author and perfecter of your faith. He's the one who worked within your heart to give you desire to look for him, to love him, to serve him, to follow him. But then he's also the perfecter of our faith. It means that he's the one who's maturing us. He's the one who's developing obedience within us. He's the one who's bringing us to completion. There's a temptation in certain circles to preach for conversion, which is wonderful, but then just keep preaching for conversion and never tell people how to live the Christian life how they can trust the Lord by faith for him to live his life in and through them, giving them strength to be able to obey and trust him day by day. This phrase, author, he starts it, he leads us to salvation, and he's the perfecter, he's the maturer. He's the one who develops us. He doesn't just leave us there. He's drawing us further and further in into greater and greater maturity in him. So we have him as our advocate. We have him as our Alpha and Omega. We have him as our Almighty One. We have him as the author and perfecter of our faith. These things are all true of Christ, and they're all true for you. And whenever you have a need, I've failed and I need forgiveness, he's our advocate. Whenever I feel like there's no purpose in life, he's my Alpha and Omega. When I feel like everything's random and life isn't going my way, I can trust he's the Almighty One, the Sovereign One, and control my circumstances. And when in my Christian life, when I need to go on, when I want to mature, when I want to grow in my faith, I can know that he's not only the author, the pioneer, who blazed the trail, who made the way, but I also can know that he's my perfecter. He's the one who matures me. As I look to him in faith, he'll develop a life of obedience within me. And that's just like five names. That's just A. That's how precious Christ is, or all in all. I'm going to do a couple more before we stop, but I want us to look. He's our beloved. You know, when Jesus was baptized, you were baptized with him because everything that happened to Jesus happened to you because when you look to him in faith, you are united in Christ. And so that all the things that he did and benefited from, you did and benefited from. So you're part of the beloved in him. You're as a child of God. The beloved is from Matthew 3.17 when Jesus was baptized. You're my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. It's a divine love between persons of the Trinity. The Father's telling the Son, I love you. 
But it's also a reference to the fact that he's the messianic king. He's the one who comes to fulfill all the promises of scripture to set us free. To set Israel free. To renew creation and to transform this fallen world. He's, in other words, he's going to make all things right. So my relationship and your relationship with the Lord is a love relationship because there was a love relationship between the Father and the Son that started this whole salvation thing. And because you've looked to him in faith, you've been placed in Christ so you can know that you're loved. We need to stop looking at our circumstances and deciding based on our circumstances whether God loves us or not. That's what we tend to do. Things are going badly, I must be getting rejected. Things are going badly, the Lord doesn't really love me. Things are going badly, the Lord must have turned his face from me. So we use our circumstances to judge whether God loves us or not. And when we do that in a fallen world, you're always going to come out with a negative answer. Well, you have to decide in your heart, is Scripture true? Is Christ the beloved and I am in him? Did God love the whole world? He gave his only begotten son. Is it true that God is love, First John 3? If he is, then what I'm going through is what's best for me. And as I'm going through this, I can trust him more because I know that he loves me. You're always assuming God loves you first. And then you're judging your circumstances through that love. He's the beloved. In John 6, 35, he's the bread of life. He nourishes you spiritually and he satisfies the deepest longings of your heart. We're in a lonely society. The amount of articles I have read of lately is talking about how lonely and detached as a society we are. It used to be just for mainly the elderly, but now it's ranging through the entire, our entire society have more people, more contacts, more media, and more loneliness, more stuff and less connectedness. And now we've been social distancing from our, each other for almost two months now. And there are people who are desperately hurting inside. And it's exposing within our hearts where they used to fill their lives with people and things and activities and events. All of a sudden, you're face-to-face with yourself. Social distance from everyone. So where does your satisfaction come from? Where does your fulfillment come from? It comes from Jesus Christ, who is the bread of life, who is ready to nourish your soul. It's not in all the activities. It's in him. And as believers, we can forget that. Forget that Christ is our bread who satisfies our longings. Let him be the bread of life in you. Let him satisfy your soul and your deepest longings. Look to him in faith. I am touch your heart. He's also our bridegroom in Matthew 9, 15. Jesus is talking about fasting and he tells them uh, his people are criticized, his disciples are criticized for not fasting. He tells the Pharisees, he said, I'm, your, I'm the, the bridegroom still here. There's no need to fast. We celebrate. In other words, he paints or uses the metaphor of a wedding to show the joy of being in his presence. And he's the bridegroom because he's preparing to marry his people, the bride of Christ. And as a bridegroom, he will nurture them, love them, lead them, protect them, and serve them. What does a good husband do? He nurtures the relationship he loves. His spouse, he leads them. He protects his wife. He serves them. 
This is Christ's heart for you as the bridegroom. You're his bride, the church. This is his heart for you, to nurture you, love you, lead you, protect you, serve you. God's calling us to an ongoing, continual conscious relationship with him. You realize that? That the Lord is wanting to draw you into a continual, ongoing, conscious, conscious relationship with him. You're aware of his presence moment by moment. Not just at worship, not just at special events, but he's wanting to cultivate with you, within you a desire to look to him. And as you look to him in faith, you're constantly aware of his presence. And as you're aware of his presence, you're falling in more and more in love with him. And in the power of the Holy Spirit, you're consciously cultivating this ongoing, moment-by-moment relationship with Jesus. And that's what he's wanting to do in your life as the bridegroom. And then, uh, last for the bees, he's our bride and morning star. In Revelation twenty two sixteen, the bright and morning. A lot of us don't get up early enough to see the bright and morning star. Yeah, and but uh, some of you do. Most of us don't. But it's that first star you see as the sun is rising, and it's di- and it's dissipating all the darkness. It's uh, a sign of hope. Imagine if you're uh, caught in the woods, you've gotten lost at a national park. And even your GPS is not working correctly. And you've been awake all night because you keep hearing animals all around you. Imagine the joy that you feel when that little brightness of that first star comes up in the morning and gives you hope that this will be over soon. That's what Jesus is. He's the bright and morning star. He's the brightest star in the morning. And it's announcing to the world that there is hope. If you're the Uh, backpacker or the hiker and you've gotten lost and that star breaks forth and the blackness of the night begins to dissipate your heart is filled with hope when you live in a fallen world and there just seems to be constant problems and suffering and need you look to Christ he's the one who dissipates the darkness and he rises up and fills your soul with hope he's the bright and morning star He's the one who's going to restore our world. He's the one who's going to give us new creation. We've only looked at A's and B's. And you can see how beautiful Jesus is. A's are all in all. He's the one who we love and we adore. I want to take this uh, quote from this famous graduation sermon and let us stand on that this morning. Uh, This was... uh, William Plummer, Presbyterian pastor. The true believer not only trusts in Christ, he glorifies in him. He not only makes mention of him, he admits that there's no one or nothing that can compare to him. To all the ends, parts and purposes of salvation, Christ stands alone. There is none like him. There is none with him. There is none before him. There is none after him. There is none beside him. Christ is all in and all. What a precious thing to end on today. Christ is our all in and all. And as we walk through the end of all this uh, virus stuff and the 
complications in our lives that it's brought, we're going to be reminded again and again that Christ is our all and in all. Let's pray. Father, we thank you this morning. We praise you and we bless you. Lord, open our hearts to be able to see this resurrected Jesus as Paul saw you. Let our hearts forever be changed by your power. May our minds forever be changed in our calling. Our emotions be always lined up with you and the truth of how you love us. Lord, help us to believe and sense and know and experience and live according to the life of the resurrected Jesus. We pray in your blessed name. Amen. Thanks for joining us this week. Hope to see you next time.